Father God, uh, we come just to humbly before you. This is uh, not always the easiest book to understand, not always the easiest subject matter. Um, but God, we thank you for opening it up to us uh, and giving us a chance to understand you and your plan better. God, we pray that you would help us to really see what we should learn tonight as we open up uh, to the letter of the Church of Philadelphia. Um, things that we can learn and apply here at Parkminster um, so that we can really be a light that shines for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we have been going through the letters to the seven churches in chapters two and three. Um, we are almost to chapter four. After tonight, we will have one more church left. And then after two long months, we will get to the fourth chapter of Revelation and be moving on into future and prophecy and all kinds of exciting stuff that connects to the Old Testament um, and getting a really big overview glimpse of what Scripture looks like uh, from beginning to end. So I'm pretty excited about that. But I couldn't be more excited about the church we're going to dig into tonight. Uh, in chapter 3, there's the final three churches. Last week, we spoke about Sardis, one of the two churches that has nothing positive said about it. And tonight, we will be in the Church of Philadelphia, which is the last of the two churches that has nothing negative said about it. It is all good news for the church at Philadelphia. Uh, so if you've been with us this far, you've seen sort of a progression of going through the postal route in Asia Minor. It's sort of a horseshoe shape starting in Ephesus and ending in Laodicea and those seven churches. Um, we've talked a little bit about each individual town, what it looks like, what it looked like at that time, how things are applicable to that specific church in that time period, how the church may be applicable to church history in the long run of church history, as well as how we can apply things to our personal lives and here at Parkminster Church. <clears throat> so, without further ado, the sixth letter to the churches, the letter to the church in Philadelphia. So as always, we will start out by getting some background information on the city and the city's history uh, and some, some interesting stuff. If you know the Philadelphia, we have Philadelphia here in the United States. It's named after the same thing. Um, it means the city of brotherly love. That's why we say that about Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. Um, same thing was said about the church or the city of Philadelphia in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Philadelphia, of the seven churches in the seven cities that letters were written to, was the youngest city on that postal route. Uh, at the time this letter was written, that John wrote this letter to the Church of Philadelphia, the city was only a couple of hundred years old. The city was founded by uh, colonists under the reign of Attalus II, who was king at the time. Um, Attalus II happened to love his brother, Eumenes, uh, quite a bit. They were really tight, um, which is why people called him uh, Philadelphus, which is why the city was named after him in Philadelphia, in the city of brotherly love, named after the king at the time who founded it, who happened to be very close with his brother. So there you go, a little bit of information on there. The city itself um, 
was actually destroyed in AD 17. So the city itself was sort of a, a cultural hub. It was on an important trade route. It was an important trade city. Um, they had very fertile soil. It's a very good farming community. They were really well known for grapes. Um, but at the same time, it was also in a very seismically active region. And in AD 17, the city was destroyed along with all of the pagan temples to the pagan gods. All of them were destroyed as well, but the pillars remained standing of the temples. Just the pillars, none of the idols. Um, so that will come into play as we learn a little bit more about what this letter has to say. The land, like I said, even though it was very volatile, it was also on the rim of where uh, there were some volcanoes in the ancient times that were active that had since gone dormant, but it left the soil very fertile, which is one of the reasons it was such a fertile place for grapes. It also happened to be a city that was perfectly situated to be a gateway for Greek culture into other areas, namely Lydia and Phrygia. Okay, So these were places that the Greek culture was trying to reach out to, trying to help them understand the Greek language, trying to help them understand the Greek culture, and basically assimilate them into sort of the Greek lifestyle. And Philadelphia was the gateway to those places um, that basically changed the language and culture of their surrounding areas and made them, Hellenize them, and made them very Greek, uh, which is also going to come into play as we dig into the scriptural part. So that's the background of the city. That's kind of what was going on at the time. It had slowly been rebuilt. A lot of people built, put their houses um, as more of temporary tent-like structures because of the seismic activity. They didn't want to lose build and lose it because there was a lot of seismic activity. Um, but that's what they were dealing with, this sort of Hellenistic culture trying to Hellenize and Westernize the world, uh, make things more Greek, became the gateway for that. So let's dig in and see what God has to say to this church. Now, I already mentioned that there's nothing negative said, so it'll be a shorter letter, uh, and it certainly won't be depressing, so that's good. We're going to walk out of here with smiles on our faces tonight, um, learning about the church of Philadelphia. So here we go, verse 7 of chapter 3. And to the angel, or that can be translated messenger, of the church in Philadelphia, right? These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. So first of all, that's the title Christ gives himself to the church. It's the first time Christ gives himself a title that doesn't directly connect to something he said about himself in chapter 1. There is something to it though but let's break it down. He is holy, true, and he holds the keys of David. Okay, So holy clearly is talking about his divinity. Um, you'll see it later in, chap you'll see it later in Revelation. Um, the angels, when they're in the throne room of God, they just repeat, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holiness is to be set apart, to be used for God. Jesus is holy. He is separate from man. There's something separate about him, something set apart, God-like about him. He is holy. 
he is true, meaning he is genuine or authentic. That is how, there's a couple different meanings of what true could mean, but the Greek here specifically is in relation to the fact that Jesus is genuine and authentic as much as he is holy and divine. And then, he, he who has the key of David. So this is sort of loosely connected to what he said about himself in chapter 1. Um, in chapter 1, Jesus says that he holds the keys to Hades and death. So he is the one who holds the keys to hell and to death. So this could be loosely referencing that. It's also a direct reference to Isaiah chapter 22. So let me explain that real quick. So, at the time, Hezekiah is the king, and he has a very close servant, basically second in command at this point, um, who named Eliakim. And this servant, in the book of Isaiah, is, a, is in typology a type of Christ. And so, as we see Eliakim and what he is doing, um, you'll see that he actually represents what the future Messiah will do for, for Israel. So I'm going to read you a couple of verses out of Isaiah 22, um, starting in verse 20 and going down to verse 22. It says this, Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. First of all, that looks a little bit like the spiritual armor. So I'll clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. So what Eliakim had when he got the keys of David is he had the ability to give access to the king. And if the door is open, then the door is open to the king. If the door is shut, you cannot get in without Eliakim. Now that is, in essence, a type of what Christ does for us. He opens the door for us to the king. We can either, we either have access or we don't based on our relationship with Jesus. If we have accepted him and we have his blood covering our sins, we have direct access to the king. No one can shut that door on us. But until that is the truth, without Jesus' blood covering our sins, we, are, we do not have any access to the king um, because we are separated by God from, from him because of our sin. So that is what that is referring to. So that is who Jesus is. He is holy. He is divine. He is authentic. He is genuine. And he holds the keys to death and Hades. And he holds access to the king, to Father God, the king. So, next verse. We're two verses in, guys. We're going to get there. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. So he's saying to this church, I give you an open door. Now this is interesting because the church, the city of Philadelphia was an open door to help Hellenize the rest of the world, to help 
Greekify the rest of the world. It also ended up being a nice gateway for the missionaries to open up the gospel to those who haven't heard it. So Philadelphia becomes the missionary church, and God opens up the door to them to spread the gospel, and no one can shut that door on them. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogues of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. So this is the second time we've seen this phrase, the synagogue of Satan. The first time we saw this mentioned was in the church of Smyrna, the other church that has nothing negative said about it. So there's something about these two churches that they have influence over those who say they believe in God but deny Christ. And this church in particular has an open door. And they seem to be changing hearts because those who believe in God but deny Christ, they have this open door and they are coming to worship before the feet of the church of Philadelphia. So they're doing the work. They're changing minds. They're changing hearts. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So let me, let me repeat that. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. So this is another reference to the rapture again. This is a direct, directly talking to this church in Philadelphia. Because of their actions, because of who they are, because they're presenters of the gospel, because they're persev they persevere, because they care about making, getting others to heaven, Jesus is telling them, I will make sure that you do not have to participate. I will keep you away from the hour of trial that's coming on the earth. His exact, the exact words were, I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. Now, this is clearly talking about something that's global. And an hour of trials is very much, can also be translated tribulation. This is talking about the tribulation period. This is a reference to the idea of potentially a pre-tribulation rapture, meaning that the church is removed before the judgment period comes. Now that question, um, there are different views on the, on the rapture. I'm not going to tell you that I believe 100% right. I'm not that arrogant. But of course, I think I'm right, or I wouldn't hold to that belief. I would change it. I do believe that the scriptures point to a pre-tribulation rapture, and I'll break that down as we get to chapter 4. But ultimately, here's the point. We've seen it in, other, in the church of Thyatira talking about the overcomers who will walk with God, and a walk with God potentially being a reference to Enoch, who never died, was taken up from the earth before the earth was destroyed by the flood. We now see him telling the church of Philadelphia they will be kept from the hour of trial. Um, and Paul even referenced this, as, this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the, the final verse, verse 10, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So he delivers us from the wrath that is coming. Jesus is the the 
the chapters 6 through 18 in the book of Revelation is very much the wrath of the Lamb. But he's saying, I will withhold that wrath from you. I will take you out before the wrath, protect you from the hour of trial that is coming. And we'll dig into that a little bit more in later weeks. But just know that this is a reference, one of the verses that is used to argue a pre-tribulation rapture. Um, And it's pretty hard to deny what it says. So, behold, I am coming quickly. And because... The next thing he says is, behold, I am coming quickly. Um, But he's not talking about coming quickly in judgment because he has nothing negative to say about the Church of Philadelphia. This is also likely leading us to believe that he's talking about the rapture of the church. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Circle crown. You're going to want to recognize that for chapter 4. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. Now, remember, this city was destroyed by an earthquake, but what was left standing? The pillars. So God is saying, even when I shake the foundations of the earth, I'm going to make you a pillar and write my name on it. That's pretty cool. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So as we sort of take this overview, right, we saw what the church and the city had gone through. Now we know that Jesus is telling them, way to go. You're the missionary church. You're the church that has changed hearts. I have left an open door for you to change the world around you. And you are doing it. Because of that, I'm going to withhold you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world. And if you continue to persevere, I'm going to make you a pillar. I'm going to write my name on it. I'm going to write the name of the new Jerusalem on it. I'm going to write my new name on it. And Jesus is probably referring to, when he says my new name, talking about the glory that he has now received after his resurrection. Because he, is no, longer, he no longer has to humble himself. His task has been completed, and now he is in his full glory. And remember, this is the revelation. This book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when he says, we will have his new name written on us, this is the glory of our king. Like, no longer needing to be humble. The Lord Jesus Christ will be written on me if I persevere. That's pretty awesome. And so, that's where the city was. We've seen the title of Christ. He's clearly divine. He's authentic. And what he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. And now if we're looking at the church from a prophetic point of view, right? If where we left off in Sardis was the Reformation, then this is the post-Reformation era or the missionary era. So this, the early 1700s up to modern times. There are some who will write in their commentaries that the missionary church ended around the year 1900. I think that that's a huge mistake because what God has opened up since the 20th century and since then has been unprecedented. We have radio, cable, satellite, internet, even places that make learning about God illegal. There's so many avenues for us to reach those places because of radio, 
television, cable, satellite, and the internet in particular. And so this open door has been stuck out there before us. I think it also it ignores major movements of evangelism. I think of Billy Graham in particular um, and what he did. Uh, clearly in the 20th century, uh, we still have major movements with certain evangelists now, people like Greg Laurie, who are still filling stadiums and talking about Jesus. Uh, there's actually a guy, I can't remember his last name, but I know his first name's Dominic. Not the Dominic that came here a couple of weeks ago. But he started a, a ministry called One Nation One Day, where he actually works with the governments of like third world countries and rents out all of their soccer stadiums, rents out all of the television rights and radio right, rights for like a full 24-hour period and just has crusades across the whole country for a single day. And then they bring in new education materials for all of the schools um, and that include things that point them to Jesus uh, and are still working that ministry to this day where they're going through and running these huge crusades and then leaving behind materials um, for new pastors and people they've trained and leaving new materials in the schools. So there's still this sort of missionary mindset that is out there and the door is still open. In fact, right now we're seeing maybe the largest movement of uh, converts to Christianity in the Middle East right now. Um, the Arab world is moving towards Christianity. There are millions of people are getting saved through satellite TV. Millions of people are getting saved through dreams. Um, there are some pretty cool ministries I would recommend to check out. Uh, the Joshua Fund would be one of them. All for Israel is another one where they focus on Israel and the surrounding areas and getting the gospel to that area of the world and seeing the impact that it's having right now. So I think, however, that time could be coming to a close. Joel Rosenberg puts it this way. Uh, Joel Rosenberg is a man who, he is Jewish ethnically, but he believes in Jesus. Uh, the way, and he's a prophecy expert. He actually uh, was detained by the Pentagon after 9-11 because of books that he wrote well before 9-11. Uh, because he wrote books based on Bible prophecy, and they basically detained him and said, how did you know this was going to happen? And uh, his response was, I just write books based on prophecy. I'm just using the Bible. Here you go. But the way he puts it is this. Jesus talks about the fact that the gospel was meant to go from, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He talked about the fact that those who are first would be last, and most, many of those who are first would be last, and many of those who are last would be first. And that meant the way that the gospel was going to be spread. Many of those who it was first presented to, which were the Jew first and then the Gentile, many of them rejected Jesus. So those who are first would be the last to receive the gospel, even though they were told it first. And those who are last, the Gentiles, would be first to receive it, even though they were last to hear it. And so he sees the, the gospel, the bullseye is Jerusalem. It's gone out to the ends of the earth. You can't get much further away from Jerusalem than Los Angeles. All right? 
and now it's coming back to the Arab world and heading back to the epicenter of Jerusalem. And so that's how he sees it. I think there's some merit to that. But the idea is that at some point, the door will be shut. Um, and, when that, and before that happens, the Church of Philadelphia gives us a key to understanding that the church will be removed before the wrath comes. And Paul even saw that. In his letters in 1 Thessalonians, he talks about Jesus delivering us from the wrath that is to come. And in the book of Romans, he writes in chapters 9 through 11 about the eventual salvation of the nation of Israel. Even though they might be the last to accept it, they will be saved. And that is what the book of Revelation covers in chapters 6 through 18. That's what it's really about. So that is the church at Philadelphia. Nothing bad, all good, all mission-minded, taking the idea that we can influence our neighbors, making that a reality, and sharing the gospel message is what they did. It's what they did in that time, in that local church. It's what they did prophetically in the historic portion of the church. And because of that, Jesus has nothing negative to say about them. And that is certainly a church we would love to mirror and have nothing bad said about us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much uh, for a chance to open up your word, to dig in, and to understand a little bit about what it looks like to be representative of the church in Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love, the church who cared about the people who surrounded them, and even if they didn't have much, even if they only had a little bit of strength, they were willing to persevere and share that message with them no matter what. I pray that we can learn from that here, personally, as a church, and as Christians in general. That even when we feel weak and when we have a little bit of strength, that we can lean in on you and your gospel message and know that that's the hope the world needs and we'll share it and persevere even if we feel like we don't have that much left in the tank. I pray that for us in Jesus' name. Amen.